All right, in our third and final segment, let's see if we can't be a little more upbeat and light, shall we? Let's start off by congratulating, again, the Sacramento Bee's Sam McManus, because he's been picked up, I don't know, for the fourth time, I think, now by The Week magazine for his excellent reporting in the Sacramento Bee. The Week noted, in quoting Sam, that when visitors happen upon Eureka, California, they're likely to admit an exclamation similar to the city's name. Sam noted that the former lumber boomtown weathered some hard decades last century, but its cache of grand Victorian architecture, much of it built from the region's redwood trees, has helped the small seaport to bounce back. Anyway, congratulations to Sam for doing it again. And congratulations for reporter James Risen from the New York Times, who luckily is not going to be called to testify at a leak trial, according to lawyers earlier this week. This ended a seven-year legal fight over whether he could be forced to identify his confidential sources. Earlier this week, the Justice Department said in court filings it would not call Risen to testify at the trial of Jeffrey Sterling, a former CIA officer charged with providing him details about a botched operation in Iran. We've heard glowing reports about his 2000 book, State of War, and a lot of his writing, and James Risen's a guy we, uh, we might want to consider bringing on this program. In fact, we are considering bringing him on this program. Whether he'll consider coming on is another matter, but we'll see what we can do here in 2015. And in a third piece about reporters, and this time about water, but in, in, a, in a good way, I'd like to refer to a piece in the Inside East Sacramento local publication, uh, My Neighborhood, by Walt Seifert. Walt is described as a bicyclist, driver, and transportation writer. He had a great piece here about pervious concrete or asphalt, meaning hard surfaces that allow rainwater to percolate through it directly into the soil. I have to say, I do contemplate sometimes how much of the world we live in is paved over, and I find it very, very depressing. Walt notes that back in the 1800s here in the U.S., we had roads that were inferior to that of the Roman Empire. They were bumpy, rutted, dusty when dry, and muddy messes when wet. In the late 1800s, the Good Roads Movement, spearheaded by bicyclists, changed how roads were built. Later, the advent of motorized vehicles made smooth, paved roads even more important for goods movement and human mobility. Noted Walt, it's been a boom time for pavement ever since. Estimates are that from 30 to 60% of the land area in cities is paved over. All those concrete and asphalt streets, sidewalks, and parking lots capping the earth have some side effects. More pavement means less open space for parks and less land available for agriculture. And runoff? That's a problem. Runoff from an acre of pavement is 10 to 20 times greater than the runoff from an acre of grassland. And yes, in times of torrential rain, stormwater surges can inundate sewage treatment plants and flash flood streets, which of course disrupts all of our lives trying to get around through giant puddles of water. So in the piece he notes that reducing stormwater quantity and improving its quality are main features of green streets. These green streets cooperate with nature by mimicking natural drainage and retaining stormwater on site. The result, less runoff, recharged aquifers, and cleaner runoff through filtering of pollutants. Streams and river habitats are then protected to a degree. He notes that street designers have used a variety of methods to minimize stormwater runoff. They've narrowed the streets to create less impervious surface area. But uh, what really excites me is this talk about the pervious concrete or asphalt. I've been down in places like Costa Rica and New Zealand where they seem to use a lot of, uh, uh, of materials with holes in it, I guess you'd say, that allows water to go directly into the earth. 
I'm going to be looking into this in the future, and we'll report back to you when I have uh, some more data on what you can do, hopefully inexpensively, to replace the asphalt and concrete around you with stuff that's a little greener. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some of the predictions for 2015, looking back at some of the predictions they made in 2014. That's always a fun exercise, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but three or four minutes would be good. We did note the Sacramento Bee did predict, uh, at least in reporting, uh, a naughty list on display at our Citizen Hotel that Leland Yee and Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow might expect some federal prosecutions in the coming year. Frankly, we're looking forward to following that story. In no small part because we enjoy saying Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow. We do want to compliment The Economist magazine for looking back at uh, 2014 and some of the predictions they made, which nobody ever seems to do. Review, I predicted this and was I accurate? <laughs> no one wants to do that because probably nobody ever is. The Economist noted that, uh, well, they did make some bad predictions, noting, quote, the main battle in 2014 will unfold over Ukraine, which has been heading toward an association and a free trade agreement with the European Union. They wrote that in The World in 2014, noting that, quote, Russia will do everything it can to stop it. Countering Russian pressure will require a vision and resolve from the West that it displayed in the early 1980s. Said the magazine, a triumph of prediction? Well, not exactly. The passage above was tucked away at the end of our piece on Russia, and despite one or two broad hints elsewhere of potential trouble, readers of last year's edition would hardly have been prepared for the prospect of Russia grabbing Crimea or stroking a small war in eastern Ukraine. They noted that our readers would have been even less prepared for the gruesome rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria and the American-led response, nor were they told to expect a bloody war in Gaza. So the magazine, in short, we did a poor job at foreseeing things that flared up suddenly. They noted that the booby prize for their predictions in 2014 goes for the fact that they said they expected that the country with the fastest growing economy would be South Sudan, where the GDP would rise by an eye-popping 35%. Sadly, what grew instead was a growth-destroying civil conflict. Of course, in speaking of predictions, I was struck by something that Mental Floss published, which they noted that back in early 2001, FEMA prophetically listed the three most likely disasters to strike America. One, a terrorist attack on New York City. Check. Two, a hurricane in New Orleans. Check. Three, a massive earthquake in San Francisco. Hmm. Well, we all know it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I'm just hoping it won't happen in my lifetime. And the Economist calendar, looking forward to 2015, they did note that this month, January of 2015, that Britons will never, never, never give up thinking about Winston Churchill on the 50th anniversary of his death. Churchill did, in fact, pass away on January 24th of 1965. We should probably say more about that on next week's show. And we'll surely be talking more about five key issues the Sacramento Bee cited in its January 5th edition. Five key issues for California in 2015, described as medical marijuana, UC tuition, immigration, taxes, and technology. We'll probably have something to say about all of them. All right, in the five minutes we have left, I'd like to uh, explore a most curious article that appeared in the December issue of Mental Floss, a piece by Brooke Jarvis titled, A Crack in the World. Starts out by saying, without ever setting sail, Marie Tharp 
mapped the ocean floor and made a discovery that shook the foundations of geology. So why did the giants of her field dismiss her findings as, quote, girl talk, unquote? To quote from the piece, Marie Tharp spent the fall of 1952 hunched over a drafting table surrounded by charts, graphs, and jars of India ink. Nearby, spread across several additional tables, lay her project, the largest and most detailed map ever produced of a part of the world no one had ever seen. For centuries, scientists had believed the ocean floor was basically flat and featureless. But the advent of sonar had changed everything. For the first time, ships could sound out the precise depths of the ocean below them. For five years, Tharp's colleagues at Columbia University had been crisscrossing the Atlantic, recording its depths. Women weren't allowed on these research trips. The lab director considered them bad luck at sea, so Tharp wasn't on board. Instead, she stayed in the lab, meticulously checking and plotting the ship's raw findings, a mass of data so large it was printed on a 5,000-foot scroll. As she charted the measurements by hand on sheets of white linen, the floor of the ocean slowly took shape before her. Tharp spent weeks creating a series of six parallel profiles of the Atlantic. Her drawings showed, for the first time, exactly where the continental shelf began to rise out of the abyssal plain and where a large mountain range jutted from the ocean floor. The range had been a shock when it was discovered in the 1870s by an expedition testing routes for transatlantic telegraph tables and had remained the subject of speculation ever since. Tharp's charting revealed its length and depth. Seen in each section of this mountain range was a deep notch near the crest, a V-shaped gap. It seemed to run the entire length of the Mid-Sea mountain range. Tharp thought, this has to be a mistake, but she crunched and recrunched the numbers for weeks on end and double-checking and triple-checking her data. As she did, she became more and more convinced that the impossible was true. She was looking at the evidence of a rift valley, a place where magma emerges from inside the earth forms new crust, and thrusts the land apart. If her calculations were right, the geosciences would never be the same. Now, if you've ever looked at a globe and noticed that South America seems to fit into Africa, and I think a lot of us did back in grade school, we're uh, revisiting the work of Alfred Wegener, who put forth the radical theory in 1912 that the continents had once been connected and had drifted apart. Of course, we now know these many years later that Wegener was absolutely right. But in 1926, at a gathering of the American Association of Petroleum Geologists, the scientists in attendance rejected Wegener's theory and mocked its maker. No force on Earth was thought powerful enough to move continents. Later, the president of the American Philosophical Society deemed it utter damned rot. So, in the 1950s, as Tharp was looking down at her telltale valley, Wegener's theory was still considered verboten in the scientific community. Even discussing it was tantamount to heresy. All of Tharp's colleagues and practically every other scientist in the country dismissed it. You could get fired for believing in it, she later recalled. But Tharp trusted what she'd seen. When she compared the data from the bottom of the Atlantic to that from rift valleys in Africa, she was even more certain. And although Tharp was absolutely right, her colleagues just said, no, this looks too much like continental drift. Later studies of the distribution of earthquakes around the world showed that an awful lot of them were taking place right in the Rift Valley that Tharp was plotting. But apparently being right didn't count if you were a girl. Even people like Jacques Cousteau were doubters until they finally put video cameras down at the mid-oceanic ridge and discovered that it looked exactly as she'd mapped it. 
Of course, the story has a happy ending. By 1997, Tharp, who had long worked patiently in some of her colleagues' shadows, got double honors. The Library of Congress named her one of the four greatest cartographers of the 20th century. And Congress included her work in an exhibit of the 100th anniversary celebration of its geography and map division. One of her maps of the ocean floor hung in the company of the original rough draft of the Declaration of Independence and pages from Lewis and Clark's journals. When she saw it, said Brooke Jarvis, she began to cry. But she notes that Tharp had known all along that the map she created was remarkable, even when she was the only one who believed. And uh, we at Radio Parallax applaud the work of Marie Tharp and glad this story did finally have a happy ending. Unfortunately, we're now out of time, so we close by noting that this program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and that you have been listening to Radio Parallax. Stands on golden sands And watches the ships That go sail